The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community. I am standing in for Kim Tebaldo, who will be with you next week. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and by telephone helpline, which is 888-793-9355. And I should mention that all of our services are provided free of charge to patients and families and caregivers. All month long in May, we are recognizing Brain Tumor Awareness Month. It does occur every May, and it gives us an opportunity to just pause and think about um, and and talk about issues around brain tumors, the the patients, the families, and some of the challenges that they might be facing. Today, there are nearly 700,000 people in the United States living with a primary brain tumor or a central nervous system tumor. And this year, we expect another 78,000 new cases of primary brain tumors and 4,600 new diagnoses in children ages up to 19. On this episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we're taking a closer look at brain tumors and particularly how they're diagnosed, what the future holds for treatment. There have been a lot of positive developments in the way in which brain tumors are treated over the course of the last even five years. Um, And and importantly, how do you make decisions if you are confronted with this particular scenario? You know, also, we're going to raise awareness, and we hope that you will share this show with your friends. Um, Even if you aren't impacted by a brain tumor, it's incredibly important that some of the concepts that we uh, communicate here today are, are, are communicated broadly. And how can you, as a patient or an advocate, be empowered to share your your own voice? So to help us with those very lofty goals, um, here today we have Dr. Nicholas Blondin, who is a lifelong Connecticut native growing up in Lichtfield and attending Wesleyan University for undergrad. Dr. Blondin obtained his medical degree from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and completed a neurology residence and neuro-oncology fellowship at Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Blondin is board certified as a neurologist with a specialization in bra- and board certification in neuro-oncology, which, are, which is the, the, the specialty of cancers of the nervous system. He practiced with the Associated Neurologists of Southern Connecticut with offices in Fairfield and Milford. He is also the medical director of the St. Vincent's 
Brain Tumor Center and Assistant Professor in Medicine at the Frank H. Netter School of Medicine and attending physician at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport. You can also find him on Twitter, which is always fun to find our guests on Twitter. And his handle is at NeuroOncNews, N-E-U-R-O-O-N-C-N-E-W-S. And you can learn more about Dr. Blondin and his practice at www.ansconeuro.com. Dr. Blondin, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning and tell our listeners, what is a brain tumor? Sure. So I view a brain tumor as an abnormal growth of tissue in the brain. And brain tumors can either be cancerous or non-cancerous in nature. And, and I didn't want to interrupt you, sorry, but so, so sure. we, we hear terms like, so when you say cancerous and non-cancerous, some of the terms that our listeners may hear would be malignant or benign. Exactly. So um, brain tumors, can I, there are a number of brain tumors that are, are considered to be benign and uh, also a number that are considered to be malignant. Benign tumors generally uh, are slow growing in the brain and can cause compression on the brain or take up space, but are generally not invasive into the brain tissue. Malignant tumors, on the other hand, generally arise in the brain tissue itself and are invasive and destructive uh, in the brain. And sometimes we hear we hear language around um, a primary brain tumor or a, mal- uh, a metastatic brain tumor. Um, can you just speak a little bit about the differences in in those in that terminology? Right, a malignant brain or a, a primary brain tumor is one that arises from the brain tissue itself. Um, the cell of origin for the tumor um, is a cell that's in the brain, whereas a metastatic brain tumor is a brain tumor that forms as a distant site of cancer that started somewhere else in the body. Uh, so common examples of that could be lung cancer or breast cancer that, um, ten- that can recur in the brain itself and then cause neurological symptoms. Mm-hmm. And those situations are treated very differently. Yes, the whole... Uh, well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. The mainstays of treatment uh, for either type of tumor is consideration of surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy, but the um, ways in which they are done can vary widely between primary brain tumors or brain metastasis. Great. And I know we're going to get into treatment in, in one of the later, the later segments, but it's always important for patients to spend time to, to differentiate, especially when you're talking to your healthcare team, um, whether or not it is a primary brain tumor or if it has metastasized from another area. Of course. Uh, it's absolutely critical to ascertain the correct diagnosis for the tumor. And I see a number of patients in the office that come and uh, initially when they meet me, they're extremely anxious because they've been told they have a brain tumor. But then on um, my review, it uh, becomes evident that in fact, what they have is a benign brain tumor or one that's very small. The most common brain tumor is actually a benign tumor called a meningioma, which is a tumor that arises from the lining of the brain. And meningiomas are generally found by an MRI scan that can be done for another, uh, another unrelated reason uh, from the, the tumor itself, and they generally don't require um, immediate treatment. So, again, it's a very important to determine what exactly is the diagnosis because um, that has huge implications for the treatment. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about what are the most, um, the, the most common symptoms that, that patients typically will present with? 
Generally, patients um, develop headaches when brain tumors are forming. However, patients also develop other neurological symptoms beyond just headaches. In fact, headaches alone are um, one of the most common medical conditions people can have, and uh, generally could be migraines or tension-type headaches. But with brain tumors, beyond the headaches, patients can have other neurological symptoms, which could include, um, like, dizziness, imbalance, visual disturbance, or a loss of vision. Sometimes it, it can be changes in handwriting or some other um, kind of balance uh, issue. And that's uh, generally what I see with patients uh, who, who are newly diagnosed. And is it accurate to say that the symptom that they present with may have something to do with the area of the brain where the tumor is located? Exactly. The symptoms that a patient is developing correlate to the area of the brain that is becoming dysfunctional. Um, As the tumor grows, it can disrupt the normal brain functions or um, the neuron pathways, and that can lead to neurological symptoms that can point me as the neurologist towards a certain localization in the brain where the problem is coming from. Then we get an imaging study like a CAT scan or an MRI to confirm the presence of some abnormality in that region that I suspect on the clinical exam. Mm -hmm. And so what are the most common types of brain cancers that you see? So again, in looking at primary brain tumors, um, the the meningioma, which is a benign tumor, is actually the most common. Um, They comprise about 33% of all um, newly diagnosed brain tumors. Other benign tumors could um, be a pituitary tumor or a nerve sheath tumor, such as an acoustic neuroma. In terms of malignant brain tumors, the most common malignant brain tumor is glioblastoma. And then other less common malignant tumors are an astrocytoma, oligodendroglioma, ependymoma. And then there are a number of other um, quite rare um, tumors that can arise in the brain, all like... um, below 1% to 2% total for the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you typically diagnose a patient? So after a patient develops neurological symptoms, uh, generally some kind of imaging study is done, again, either a CAT scan or an MRI. And then based on the imaging, if a tumor appears on the scan, I can look to see where is the tumor located, does it appear to be in the brain tissue, or is it located inside the head but outside the brain tissue, um, like a meningioma? And then what is the appearance of it? Does it appear to be invasive, or does it have other um, evidence of potentially aggressive growth? And I can kind of get an idea of what I suspect the tumor might be. But then uh, following that, really, I... Um, Diagnose, uh, a surgery is needed for accurate diagnosis um, by obtaining tissue from the tumor, so we really know what the tumor is. Okay, and that's, that's, what, that, that's what we would hear, the language biopsy. You would do a biopsy of the tumor? or, or would Exactly. You... Okay. Well, I guess it, it depends what the um, MRI or the CAT scan looks like. Mm-hmm. In general, with tumors, if they can be rem- removed completely, that is preferable uh, versus a biopsy. Uh, However, tumors can arise in deeper parts of the brain or in critical regions of the brain, and these Mm -hmm. tumors are considered inoperable. Still, even with inoperable tumors, most tumors are able to be biopsied to confirm the diagnosis. Rarely, tumors can develop in a part of the brain called the brainstem, 
And in that cases, biopsy carries a high risk of causing neurological disability itself. And occasionally, uh, surgery is deferred in those cases and uh, just uh, some type of treatment is started. But again, I'm reluctant to treat uh, any patient until uh, at least a biopsy has been done or surgical removal of the tumor and then confirmation of the tumor type by a pathologist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions um, that I, I'm sure our listeners are, are just curious about given, on, given the responses to the last couple of questions from you. So when, sure. you, say, when you say that you can you know, look at the, 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 the X-ray, let's just call you know, the MRI, the CAT scan, and, and are, there, are there different growth patterns for each of the different tumor types? So you say that you can get a pretty good you know, guess on what type of cancer it would be just by looking at the radiology results. Yes. So the answer is yes. An MRI provides significantly more information than a CAT scan, and it can show exact, you know, the exact location of the tumor, what brain structures the tumor may be compromising, if there's swelling occurring in the brain around the tumor, um, where is that occurring, what is the degree of the swelling, and uh, often with an MRI scan, a contrast agent can be given intravenously, and if that goes into the areas where the tumor is, it can be visualized with a scan. And when that occurs, generally the tumor has a more aggressive growth pattern. And so I can, again, know what the um, odds are based on the MRI of what a certain tumor could be and whether, whether further treatment is, is, in fact, warranted or not. Mm-hmm. And then one quick question. We've got about a minute until we go to break, but we're, when we come back, I really want to talk to you about treatment options. And so when you do talk about the ability to biopsy the tumors, you know, we hear so much about personalized medicine and being able to really tailor the treatment to not only just the tumor type, but the tumor type as it lives within the patient um, and all of those, you know, specific measures. Um, is it that way with treatment for brain cancer as well? Yes, um, although I would have the caveat be that in terms of the initial treatment, which is surgical removal of the tumor, most neurosurgeons would try to remove as much as safely possible of the tumor. In fact, that aspect of the treatment is not, uh, doesn't really need to be personalized. Again, the goal for all neurosurgeries going in would be to um, try to remove as much tumor as safely possible. And then following that, that treatment can be individualized with uh, radiation or chemotherapy or some other more advanced or experimental um, modalities that we'll probably be discussing later in the talk. Great. Thank you for that clarification. And we are going to come back right after this commercial break into our second segment and dedicate that segment mostly to treatment for patients with uh, brain tumors. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's show is sponsored by NovoCure. We will take this quick commercial break and hear more from Dr. Blondin about brain tumors, Brain Tumor Awareness Month, and other um, pieces of, of information on survivorship when we return from this break. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. 
For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code Magnolia B or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, President of the Cancer Support Community, sitting in for Kim Tebaldo, who will rejoin you next week. And I am joined today by Dr. Nicholas Blondin, who is a neurologist and medical director of St. Vincent's Brain Tumor Center, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Frank H. Netter School of Medicine, and Attending Physician at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport. And before the break, we were speaking about general information about brain tumors, trying to get our arms around what they are, generally how they're treated. And I'd like to take this segment and dedicate it to really diving into some of the treatment options that are available. And, you know, I know, Dr. Blondin, we had talked um, before the break about this idea around personalized medicine and brain cancer. And um, I think that you had a really good point that I'd like for you to speak more about, just around the diversity of the way in which the different types of brain cancers are treated with the primary treatment being some sort of a surgical intervention. Can you just share with our listeners what your thinking is around that? Sure. Um, Well, again, there is a wide range of brain tumors, and the first separation is between the primary brain tumors, which arise in the substance of the brain itself, versus uh, brain metastasis, which is a brain tumor that forms as a cancer that originated in another part of the body. So I first look at a patient and based on the MRI can generally tell uh, what type of the tumor it is, as well as taking a patient's history. Obviously, if a patient has a pre-existing history of a uh, type of cancer, that would make me suspicious for a uh, brain metastasis. 
But then looking at the different treatment options for patients, uh, the, generally the three um, common treatments are surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy. And uh, I would like to add a new treatment for a certain type of primary brain tumor called a glioblastoma is electrical field therapy that can be delivered to the tumor um, as well. So most patients undergo surgery as their first line of treatment, and then following surgery, a, a diagnosis is confirmed by a pathologist, and then with that diagnosis in hand, it is my job as the neuro-oncologist to help guide a patient towards what are the next steps in the phase of their treatment. And so speak a little bit about that. So when you do sit with a, with a patient and, and, and help them understand that, you know, what is the depth of... Of, of the explanation that you give them, you know, I know that, that one patient is one patient. Everyone is so unique in those conversations, but you know, what typically, what do you review with them? Um, you know, what is the sense of urgency, uh, you know, the time that they would have to, to really step back from that conversation and, and make a decision? What is that process like? Right. I think where a patient first uh, develops neurological symptoms and has an imaging revealing a tumor, the first step is to determine is surgeon is surgery needed urgently or can it wait for some, uh, some period of time? Um, what is the surgical plan going to be? How much of the tumor can be safely removed? Then once that's uh, decided, the patient will undergo surgery and the recovery from surgery is generally two to four weeks. Um, and then for patients with um, malignant brain tumors, further treatment is needed. The reason for that is because even though a surgeon may be able to remove all of the visible tumor seen on an MRI scan, there can still be some cells uh, from the, the brain cancer that is infiltrating into the normal brain that's surrounding the, the tumor region. And it's those cells that can regrow a new tumor if uh, the patient doesn't receive any further treatment from that point. Uh, I've had a number of patients um, tell me that they have an understanding that malignant brain tumors like a glioblastoma can grow fingers into the normal brain, and I think that's an accurate description of what's happening biologically. And then it's my job, again, as the neuro-oncologist to help a patient towards further treatment that will ideally stop those residual cells from growing into a new tumor and uh, essentially keep the disease in check for as long as possible. And and tell tell me tell me what your thoughts are around second opinions. So as you're as you're sort of helping them make this decision, if there's time available, do you encourage them to go for a second opinion, or is the second opinion the tumor board? I'm just trying to to equip our listeners with um, knowledge of what would be available to them. Exactly. So I. I uh, do recommend second opinions, and I think that the benefit of a second opinion can be to obtain expert advice um, at a center where a lot of patients are being treated for this disease. So um, um, across the country, patients uh, may be diagnosed in areas um, where there's uh, a rural population or the local doctors may not see the disease um, very often. So it can be helpful for a patient to get reassurance with a second opinion at a large academic medical center that they're on the right path. Uh, but um, the con of getting a second opinion can be um, getting conflicting advice from the original opinion. Uh, this can be stressful for patients. 
And then also sometimes travel is difficult, uh, particularly if a patient has neurological disabilities. Um, so that also needs to be taken into consideration. And I would say the standard of care for treatment of patients um, is well-established in the U.S. There are consensus guidelines from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network on what the standard of care treatment should be. And for patients with malignant brain tumors, specifically glioblastoma, after maximal surgical resection, patients are recommended to get radiation therapy uh, for a six-week course, as well as temozolomide chemotherapy, uh, or temidar, that's taken together uh, during the radiation period. And then following the completion of the radiation, the patient then can go on to further, uh, further treatment um, with chemotherapy, the temidar. And then, as I mentioned uh, before, the electrical field therapy with the Optune device can be used in conjunction with the chemotherapy, and this has been proven to uh, help patients live longer uh, if they're able to successfully use the device. Okay, so I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, and sure. I, want, I want you to, to, to work with me to step back um, for our listeners. So when we're talking about surgical removal, we're, ta- we're talking about taking the tumor out, doing a surgery yes. and taking the tumor out. When you talk about radiation therapy, you're talking about using essentially radioactive beams, right, to do yeah, a, a very radi- localized... Go ahead. Yep, radiation beam to deliver a localized therapy to the region of the brain where the tumor is located. And then when you talk about the use of chemotherapy, we're talking about drugs that penetrate the, the broader system of the patient, not just that local area. Yes, chemotherapy is taken um, into the body at whole, which can have side effects in the rest of the body. Uh, for brain tumors specifically, Temidar is a commonly used chemotherapy drug, and it can cause gastrointestinal um, side effects or nausea as a toxicity. It can also affect bone marrow function and blood count levels, and also it can cause a fatigue um, as a side effect. But the idea is, you know, to your point, if there is a, a cell or, you know, some cells that escaped the brain area, um, the chemotherapy would hopefully capture them because of the broader exactly. distribution. The, the idea Got is it. to remove as much as possible with the surgery and then get the res, residual cells that are still there with um, the further therapy, gotcha. radiation, chemotherapy, or the electrical field therapy. So speak to us now more about electrical field therapy, because I think of, of surgery, radiation, chemo, you know, those have been around for a long time, and, and we know quite a bit about those, um, but, ta- but say more about electrical field therapy, and you can start at the beginning. What is it? How sure. is it delivered? <laughs> so electrical field therapy is a new way to treat cancer. It's delivered via um, a device. The electrical field therapy is um, currently available to... Uh, recurrent or newly diagnosed glioblastoma patients. It's produced uh, by uh, Novacure, and the device is called the Optune device. Patients uh, wear this medical device called Optune on their scalp, um, along with having the uh, power generator um, that they carry with them. And the electrical fields that are generated by the device go through the head as a localized therapy and can interfere with with the growth of the tumor. The electrical activity can interfere with cell division by disrupting the normal uh, cell division process in tumor cells. So it, it works in a different mechanism than chemotherapy, although both modalities are um, trying to prevent the tumor from growing through cell division. 
So the device has been approved, FDA approved for usage in newly diagnosed glioblastoma patients following radiation therapy since October of 2015. And I recommend it to all patients uh, following the completion of radiation therapy to at least consider using the device um, in addition to their chemotherapy. Okay. So it doesn't replace radiation therapy, but it's given, I don't want to say in addition to, but after. It's an Exactly. It's essentially an add-on therapy to uh, the tem- Temidar chemotherapy. So I, I foresee the whole field of neuro-oncology um, moving towards the uh, addition of lots of add-on therapies to the current standard of care. So the initial treatment for brain tumors in the 70s, 60s and 70s was surgery. Then in the 70s, 80s and 90s was surgery followed by radiation. Then in the 90s to 2000s, it was surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And now in 2015 to 2016, it's surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and electrical field therapy. And then there's a number of other exciting things that are coming up, um, including immune system therapy or immunotherapy that probably will have some impact in neuro-oncology over the next five to 10 years. Hmm. Interesting and, and exciting for patients. Yeah, I think it's very exciting. And we're finally seeing some progress against brain tumors uh, when it seemed like years and years were going by where really no meaningful progress was being made in the treatment uh, of these these diseases. Mm-hmm. And I do want to I, I stay on the theme of, of advances in, in treatment. I just have a quick, uh, a quick question to you as I was sort of, you know, processing when you were saying surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, electrical field therapy. Does any of the, pro- does any of the progress, or I'm thinking about this electrical field therapy in combination with chemotherapy, does it have anything to do with what has been this, this elusive blood-brain barrier where we've been afraid that drugs couldn't adequately cross the blood-brain barrier? Does this electrical field therapy help with that any? I don't think the electrical field therapy um, really actively changes the blood-brain barrier. But again, because it's a physical modality with an electrical field, the blood-brain barrier isn't um, relevant to the mechanism of action of it. Mm -hmm. The blood-brain barrier is... um, a essentially a connective tissue that exists between the blood vessels, uh, like the arteries and the brain tissue, and it makes it difficult for chemotherapy drugs to move from the bloodstream into the brain. It's been a um, significant problem in new chemotherapy development uh, for decades, essentially, and it, it continues to be a problem that thwarts the development of new drugs. Um, there's not a great way to overcome the blood-brain barriers. It's a a natural um, substance that the, the body evolved with to keep harmful toxins from the bloodstream out of the brain. So we need to have new modalities that um, really can just bypass the blood-brain barrier, don't need to, don't need to get around it. Um, and those, I think, will have the best chance of being effective as new therapies. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. And we are going to go to a quick break. When we come back, I do want to, to continue on this theme and, and cover some of the, the, the modalities that you've talked about, immunotherapy in particular, um, as we move into the next segment. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This episode is sponsored by NovoCure. And as a reminder, if you have been diagnosed with a cancer or if you have been a caregiver for someone who has been diagnosed with a cancer, please consider becoming a part of the Cancer Experience Registry and help us learn more about what that experience is like and and also turn that information into services that would be helpful to you. The website for that is www.cancerexperienceregistry.org. We will be right back after this commercial break with Dr. Nicholas Blondin. 
cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, standing in for Kim Tivaldo, who will be with you next week. Today we are learning more about brain tumors and the and brain cancer in honor of Brain Tumor Awareness Month, which happens every May. And it gives us the chance to pause and really dive deep into the issues around brain cancers. Joining me today is Dr. Nicholas Blondin, a neurologist and medical director of the St. Vincent's Brain Tumor Center, assistant professor of medicine at the Frank H. Netter School of Medicine, and attending physician at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport. And we just finished a fantastic segment, I think, on treatments for brain cancers. And we were talking, Dr. Blondin, just about all of the advances um, that have been made Uh, you know, in the treatment of of brain cancer. And I agree with you in the time that I've been practicing as a nurse, there have been a lot of of progress. And I would say even more so in the last five years, it just seems like the the advancements have escalated. And I'd love for you to to repeat what you said in the the previous segment, um, just about treatments of the 70s, treatments of the 80s, what you see for even the next two years. Sure. So, you know, where we're at right now with treatment, the standard of care for malignant brain tumors like glioblastoma is maximal safe surgical resection, followed by radiation and chemotherapy, and then consideration of adding electrical field therapy with the Optune device after radiation. So then a patient receives that treatment. Unfortunately, the chances are, the, you know, the, the overwhelming chances are that the tumor will recur, uh, meaning come back at some point. The reason for this biologically is because it's extremely difficult to eradicate all of the residual tumor cells in the brain. Some of the cells are resistant to all the therapies. Um, it's not clear biologically why that is, but it's a commonly um, accepted fact. 
and new treatments are working towards kind of overcoming that block and finding a way to eradicate all of the residual cancer cells that, that could be still in the brain. So most new clinical trials in development are looking um, at different techniques that can kind of target those remaining population of cells that could be resistant to the radiation chemotherapy and electrical field therapy. Great. And, and one of the things that you had mentioned um, was just in, in the sense of advancements, and I love the, the idea of this electrical field um, treatments, but you also mentioned this idea of immuno-oncology or immunotherapy. And, you know, while immunotherapy has been early, or I'll say early immunotherapy has been around for many, many, many years, we've also seen incredible advancements in that um, over the last three or four years in truth. And it's become popular in brain cancer through... Dr. or Dr. Carter president Jimmy Carter and his yeah. treatment um, with immunotherapy. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about immunotherapy and you know what they are and how they're used specifically in the treatment of, of brain tumors. Sure. So uh, immunotherapy is a modality where the patient's own immune system can become activated to fight the cancer as a foreign invader into the body. So the immune system uh, originated as a way to rid the body of bacteria or viruses. But cancer can kind of evade the immune system through some different mechanisms that it has. And the goal of immunotherapy is to uh, stimulate the immune system to overcome the blockade the tumor is putting, uh, putting on there. So there have been incredible advances in other kinds of cancers, specifically malignant melanoma and certain kinds of lung cancer with some uh, new agents that are given through uh, IV infusion to stimulate the immune system. For brain tumors, these are being looked into, although it's um, very preliminary and no uh, really good clinical data is available yet on the effect of these drugs. These are Opdivo and Keytruda. For brain tumors, the immunotherapy uh, over the last several years has focused on strategies where a patient can become vaccinated against the tumor. Uh, Really, the patient receives a vaccine product that can try to stimulate the immune system against certain proteins in the tumor. And a large clinical trial was recently completed on a product called Rintiga or Rindopepamut that was looking extremely promising in early phase studies, but unfortunately um, didn't meet the needed endpoint to prove a beneficial effect for patients. So that was a uh, disappointing setback in the development of a vaccine therapy for glioblastomas over the last six months. But there are a few other large trials using uh, slightly different products that are ongoing. These are the ICT-107 study and the heat shock protein uh, study, both in late-stage clinical development. And I think both are uh, exciting drugs. And so, and so for our listeners, if they were interested in getting additional information about those particular trials, um, how would they go about doing that? Sure. Um, for patients uh, that um, are, you know, kind of looking, want to look into all their options, I would recommend they go to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a website run by the federal government where the, it is mandated that all clinical trials and patients be listed. And up on the top of the page, you'll see a box you can just type in the type of tumor that you have. So you could type in glioblastoma and see a list of all patients that are actively, um, all studies that are actively recruiting patients. You also could put in the state that you live in or some other um, search terms to try to narrow the search. 
And you also may want to consider going to the website of a large academic medical institution near where you live, such as um, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, uh, UCSF in California, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, or Dana-Farber Cancer Institute here in the Northeast. And most of these large centers will have a listing of trials that they ha- have um, available to patients with certain conditions. Great. That's helpful. And I'll just offer up to our listeners that um, if you need additional help, feel free to call our helpline and um, our helpline counselors can help you through that process as well. And that number again is 888-793-9355. Dr. Blondin, I wanted to just get a sense from you um, about gene therapy. And we've heard a lot about gene therapy becoming a part of the future of treatment for for brain cancers. Do you have any thoughts around that? Sure. Maybe starting with gene, what gene it is. Therapy, <laughs> gene therapy is extremely exciting. Um, gene therapy is the delivery of DNA or a gene into a patient's body as a way to treat a disease like cancer. And in gene therapy for brain tumors, the concept is to inject a virus uh, into the patient's body or brain that can produce the toxic compounds um, to destroy the tumor. There are two um, gene therapy platforms that are in late-stage clinical trial development that are produced by either Tocogen or VBL Therapeutics. And I think that both of those are exciting um, studies. Gene therapy has come um, kind of a long way from its inception about 20 years ago. Uh, Initially, um, the biology of gene therapy wasn't well understood, and um, there were a lot of safety concerns about it. But uh, now there's been years and years of research into how gene therapy can be done safely, and it appears with the new compounds that... um, they're safe, and they're being tested for uh, their effectiveness against brain tumors. Mm-hmm. So let me ask a clarifying question then, because when you say inject a virus, that sort of makes you think about a vaccine, yes. right? So how does gene therapy work different from vaccine, the vaccines that you mentioned? Okay. In the vaccine strategy, the vaccine is administered under your skin, uh, like on your arm or in your armpit, and mm-hmm. then you're circulating immune cells can detect the vaccine uh, product and then become activated. And then they'll kind of just cross-react with the same uh, compound that's in the vaccine, which is also on the surface of the tumor. Mm-hmm. For gene therapy, on the other hand, the, gene, the viral uh, particles that can deliver the genes are actually given directly into the brain, um, either through a direct injection of virus into the brain or brain tumor region, or given intravenously into the bloodstream, where then they kind of can uh, concentrate in the brain to affect their um, mechanism of action. Great. Thank you for that clarification. And is there anything else before, I, I, I want to spend a little time on raising awareness and the importance of brain tumor awareness. Is there anything else around treatment or diagnosis or getting patients to the right centers that you wanted to raise that we may have missed today? Sure. I think brain tumor awareness is key because there are still remain few effective treatments for brain cancer. Um, we talk about a lot of pro- promising modalities, but I want to see them all the way through um, proof of beneficial effect scientifically and distribution of the products to the general public. So brain tumor awareness is critical to um, increase awareness of the condition, increase funding for research, and also increase um, funding and networks for patient support. And uh, it 
being diagnosed with a brain tumor changes your life forever. Um, they can be really um, devastating diseases. They can affect not only the patient but the whole family. And often patients and caregivers um, need someone to talk to or just someone to help kind of understand what's going on. What are the options? It certainly is overwhelming getting the diagnosis that you have a brain tumor, and it can be extremely helpful to um, get together and hear from other people uh, what their experience has been and see some, uh, you know, hope and encouragement for patients that are doing well on therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, our vision statement is that no one faces cancer alone, and I think that's, that's right. really important, Completely especially when you've that. got devastating tumors, um, you know, and, and understanding how others cope with the disease is, is really helpful. Yeah. To know you're not alone. And I know everyone feels alone when they're first diagnosed, but they're not. There's, there's others that, have, that are living with it, that have lived with it, and there are support networks that are out there to uh, help, um, you know, just help, help, you know, help you understand what's going on and live the best quality of life that you can. Um, and feel, feel as good as you can going through the treatment. <laughs> so we are going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to spend time talking about that. How do you manage the symptoms, How do you and where do you reach out for help, and how do you live with brain tumors? And I know that there are people who are living with brain tumors for many, 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 many years. Um, this That's is right. Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This episode is sponsored by NovoCure, and we will be right back for our final segment after this break. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and I'm your guest host today, Linda House, and we will be closing out our show on Brain Tumor Awareness Month with Dr. Nicholas Blondin, who is a neurologist and medical director at St. Vincent's Brain Tumor Center and an assistant professor of medicine at the Frank H. Netter School of Medicine, also an attending physician at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport. And this last segment, I know we'll, we'll move quickly, so we want to just get to a couple of, of, of key points. You know, I really think that um, one of the differentiators for some of the treatments that you've mentioned, Dr. Blondin, have been some symptoms. Um, and, and I know that you've done a great job covering, you know, symptoms along the way throughout the conversation. But I do want to emphasize to our listeners that there are people with brain tumors who are living for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe you can talk through some of the, you know, the, the management of those symptoms as they um, find their new normal of living, you know, with, with brain tumors. Right. Well, so brain tumors can cause neurological symptoms due to their nature of existing in the brain. And... The most common symptom I found patients to experience is fatigue. Uh, Fatigue is um, kind of an ongoing issue that can be caused either from the cancer or the treatment or some uh, other drugs that are used to uh, support a patient's health like steroid medications such as dexamethasone. So I found uh, patients need to battle against fatigue and uh, trying to maintain some type of fitness uh, program or exercise um, to the degree possible, always seems to help. And maintaining a good diet um, of balanced foods, fruits, vegetables, staying hydrated, and like a holistic approach to nutrition is, is important and quite helpful for t- fatigue. And then other neurological symptoms can include um, problems with getting around, moving, um, weakness in um, you know the arms or, or legs, and coordination problems. These can uh, affect the patient's ability to work, sometimes affect the patient's ability to communicate, um, and they just need to be addressed kind of individually. Um, with all my patients, I try to see what their disabilities are and optimize a patient's ability to function as much as possible uh, given, given the situation for them. Mm-hmm. Well, and we hear so often from patients that they're, they're, they're not as forthcoming with sharing symptoms that they might be having or side effects that they might be having with their medical team, you know, just because they, they feel like yeah. it might be a sign of weakness. That's what they tell, you know, that's what they tell us um, a yeah, lot. I think that's accurate. Yeah. And so... Um, I would encourage patients not to be afraid to tell their doctor about these sorts of things, um, things that are very important to their quality of life or the things they want to do. I have a number of patients that I kind of get it out of them what kind of, what would they like to do? If they felt, if they felt good, what kind of things would they want to do? Uh, you know, one gentleman told me he wants to go fishing. Another patient wanted to go to a uh, show. And I, I encourage patients to do those things because I think that that's very, um, that's, you know, that's key to maintaining your quality of life and feeling as best as you can given the uh, situation. Well, I think I, I would love for our listeners to know that, you know, if, if they come to you or their, their physician or their nurse um, with a problem that they're having, there are many solutions to sort of help them overcome some of the physical barriers. You know, I think about when you talk yeah. about, um, you know, dizziness or difficulty with mobility that, you know, certainly you could refer them to physical therapy, for example. 
right, for balance therapy or some of those other techniques. Yes. I'm a uh, big utilizer of physical therapy and rehabilitation services for my patients. It can be um, performed at outpatient um, rehab centers, or it can even be uh, provided in the home if the patient has um, some difficulties with getting around or leaving the house. I uh, often recommend to patients to consider a home nursing program like visiting nurse services. And another uh, factor which can become important for patients is a palliative care program, which is treatment that focuses on the patient's symptoms and trying to optimize the quality of life for the patient as much as possible. Um, And palliative care should kind of be integrated into a patient's treatment, um, really essentially at the the beginning, uh, you know, of their whole therapy. And again, that's just focusing on trying to make a patient, uh, but but let a patient feel as best as possible every day when they live their life. Yeah, I think that's great to underscore that. And and I've seen firsthand what interventions can do for people, (laughs) right? And, and, And how it can really give them back good quality of life. Yeah, it's important for patients to always bring up symptoms with their treatment team so that it can be decided if the symptom is related to the disease or not, if it's related to the treatment of side effects or not, and what can be done about it. And for every symptom, there's always something, um, some kind of treatment or some kind of therapy that potentially could help, uh, you know, help them feel better. Yep. So for our listeners, tell your doctors early and often if you're having symptoms. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oftentimes, minor symptoms um, can be uh, dealt with immediately before they turn into bigger problems, and that you know that's why I encourage my patients to let me know early what's what's going on. And so we have three minutes before we go to break, and I do want um, you to to speak to something that I think is is critically important for all of us, regardless of whether you have cancer or not. But because of some of the changes that patients may go through um, as they are having surgery or radiation or chemotherapy, it's it, it may be even more important that people who have a new diagnosis of cancer um, think about what we call advanced directives and power of attorneys being one example of those. But can you speak a little bit to that? Right. I think that it's important to... Um designate a healthcare representative for yourself um, when you're facing a diagnosis of a brain tumor. And this could be um, your spouse or another loved one. And it's just important that um, someone else is looking out for you in case a complication arises from surgery or in case a complication arises from um, the disease or therapy that you have someone that's looking out for you and that understands what your uh, wishes are in case your health health becomes poor. And then, you know, you want to have some, have things arranged financially so that um, your family has access to any kind of financials or uh, passwords for email or uh, social media. It's just important to um, not um, leave your uh, things kind of in the dark, if you will. Um, And so I tell patients again, uh, really at the beginning, who is going to help you um, with this disease because, you know, no one wants to go it alone. And it's really crucial to have a a caregiver that you you trust to help you after the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much um, for that, for that information. Um, In the one minute we have left, is there anything that you want to reinforce with our listeners? Again, uh, I guess I can reinforce the um, idea that you're not alone. 
there's a lot of organizations that exist for brain tumor patients for support. Um, obviously, the cancer support community um, that's hosting this talk. Again, for brain tumors specifically, you can get information from the American Brain Tumor Association or the National Brain Tumor Society. And there's a number of local charities um, that can be um, also quite helpful. Here in Connecticut, we have the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance or ctbta.org that I found to be um, very helpful for patients of mine to have um, local people that they can connect with that understand what it's like to go through this, um, both on the patient side and the caregiver side. And just, again, connect, connecting and um, having... Uh, people help you, uh, you know, go, go through the process together, I think is really important for all patients. Great. Thank you for that. That's a perfect way to close. And thank you so much for joining us today. You've helped us learn a lot about brain tumors and why brain tumor awareness is so important. And I am going to tweet you right after the show and for our listeners that um, your Please Twitter do. handle is at NeuroOncNews, N-E-U-R-O-O-N-C. N-E-W-S, and also encourage folks to visit your website at www.anscneuro.com. So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host, Linda House, signing off. Kim Tebaldo will be with you next week. As you know, the cancer support community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. And if you or anyone you know is diagnosed with the cancer, you do not have to do it alone. We encourage you to visit our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. And or call our telephone helpline at 1-888-793-9355 to speak with one of our licensed mental health professionals Monday through Friday from 9 to 9. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.